turn to the Gospel according to Matthew. And for this Sunday, probably uh, two more Sundays from now, we'll be in Matthew chapters 1 and 2. And I preached these chapters before here at Pilgrim, but maybe it was 10 years ago. So we're going to cover them again. Matthew chapter 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadabad. Amenabad, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asa, and Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Ammon, and Ammon, the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Verse 12, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Ahim, and Ahim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, the Christ, 14 generations. Lord, as we continue to worship you, to exalt you, and to give you glory, as we come to your word and are in this beginning section of Matthew, which is a genealogy, Lord, which can seem uh, dull and boring, Lord, but we trust and know that your word always has a purpose and a reason even in genealogies. And so now we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us in your word and that you would instruct us. Do this, Lord, for your glory and for our benefit, Lord. We praise you. Amen. Let me be the first to wish you a merry, merry genealogy. Am I the first one to ever wish you a merry, merry genealogy? I didn't say wish you a Merry Christmas. I, I do wish you a Merry Christmas. But this morning, I want to start with saying Merry Genealogy. Thank you. And this is not the first genealogy that I've preached at Pilgrim. 
Gosh, if you ever preach or read through Joshua, you will have to preach or read through many genealogies and lists of land distribution. If you preach through, through Nehemiah, if you preach through the Old Testament and even here in Matthew and Luke, eventually you're going to get to a long list of names. And the temptation as we look at these names is to think they're unimportant and boring. But the other temptation is to think that every single name necessarily needs to be explored. So what could happen here at Matthew 1 is we're going to have a 40-part sermon series. We're going to explore every name. Well, we would be here for a very long time. A very long time. That's not the purpose of this genealogy. The purpose, of course, is that it begins in verse 1, and at the end of verse 14, it begins and ends with the word, our version here says the Messiah, it's Christos, it's Christ. This genealogy is about Christ. And as verse 16 says, it's about the father, his earthly father's link to David, to Judah, to Abraham. This genealogy is not boring. Now, though some of you may not like genealogies, you might like a genealogy if it's about you. You know, I never liked family trees until my grandfather did our family tree and found out that my family came across on the Mayflower and that my great 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 grandfather was Miles Standish, captain of the army on the Mayflower. If you get into a genealogy, there are some very interesting links. On Lisa's side, her Grandfather was part of the 442nd and fought in World War II and has amazing, amazing, amazing heroic stories. Genealogies, parts of it can be dull. Like when you come to my life, it's going to be, well, a little bit dull. But there are sections of genealogies which are amazing, and we have that here. But the reason why this is here is not to focus necessarily on each of these individuals, but as we said, to focus on on Christ. And this book, as it says in verse 1, the book, the version says in New American Standard, the record, it's the word bibulos, the book, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, Messiah, Matthew, is about that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus the Son of Joseph and Mary is the Christ that was promised. So as we start this little series on Jesus on Christmas, we're going to start with this genealogy, and I want to look at it with this approach. Take conviction and comfort from this, what seems like it could be a dull genealogy. Take comfort and conviction from it. Because it is significant, right? I mean, it's starting the whole beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. It's starting the New Testament. It's about the Messiah. It's here for a purpose. And I would say it's to take comfort and even to take conviction. Be encouraged, but yet also be exhorted about the truth that's in this passage. 
And mainly, I want you, and I think this is what God wants from this passage, is to take home primarily this thought. Life and this world that you know it will not continue on as the same. We're not always going to be living under a curse. We're not always going to have to deal with evil every single day. History is not going to go on forever. One of the ways that we know that is because a completely, utterly unique and special event that will never and ever happen ever again happened. And that was that God became flesh. That God the Son was born. Even became an embryo and was even implanted into a womb for all those who would trust him. And at that moment, the history of the world changed. The history of the universe changed forever. We're not going to just stay in the same course of history for billions and billions and billions of years. Because the Messiah came, lived an obedient life, died on the cross for sinners who trust him, rose again, and he's going to return. But that started with his birth. So his birth changes everything. This morning then, as we look at this, let's consider the comfort and the conviction that this should bring into our life. That is the truth that the Christ, the Messiah, has been born. Number one, take comfort and conviction from the birth of Jesus Christ because the divine warrior, savior, king has already victoriously accomplished his main mission. That divine warrior, savior, king, that's Jesus, God in the flesh, has already been born lived a perfect, obedient life to God the Father and His Word, died, rose again, ascended, and now is at the right hand of God the Father on high and will soon return. Now, this is an emphasis in this passage. That is, that Jesus is the Messiah. One way to look at the Messiah is the divine warrior, savior, king. Prophet, Messiah of Christ means the, the anointing word, prophet, priest, and king. Another way to look at it is at the same time, this divine warrior, savior, king, and this king that is a warrior that fights, not just for God the Father, fights for us, the great high priest that died on the cross for our sin. This is Jesus Christ, Again, you can see this in verse 1 and also in verse 16, who was called the Christ, verse 16. The son of David, the son of Abraham, the son, you can see in verse 2, the father of Judah. That, that's that kingly line. From Abraham to Judah to David. And then even a list of these kings, right? David and Solomon. Rehobim, Hezekiah, Josiah, even evil kings, Ahaz. This is pointing out that Jesus is in the rightful line of kings. Jesus is king, and he's the king, the promised king. Now, that's the emphasis, but we can 
brought this out a, a little bit more. And I said that this passage is saying that everything has changed. Life's not just going to continue on through this endless cycle of, of years of evil, 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 some good, evil. There's been a brand new age that has started. And part of this, you can see in verse 1, where it says the record of the genealogy, and even this word in verse 18, now the, the birth of Jesus Christ, that word birth in verse 18, it's basically the same word as genealogy in verse 1. It's the same root. And basically you say Genesis. That's basically how you would say it in Greek. Gen S Eos beginning. The Septuagint, the Old Testament in Greek, the title of the book is basically Genesis or Gen S Eos. Gen S Eos. The idea of origin or source or beginning. Because verse 1 says the record, the book, then that's why it's translated genealogy, but you could say the record of the source of Jesus Christ. The record of the, the beginning of his line. And there is this thematic idea throughout Scripture that becomes full-blown in the New Testament Galatians chapter 1, 3 through 4, talks about a new age that comes with the birth of the Messiah. Right? Even when Jesus was here on earth, he said, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe. So there is this, though it's subtle, there is this idea of, of new beginnings, of a new age, of brand new origins that are more than just a Jewish baby being born in Bethlehem. Something else is going on. And that's why even later you have in chapter 2 the, the wise men. If we were in Luke, then you would have the angels and the shepherd. So as we start this off, then we're seeing that we should take conviction and comfort because Jesus is the, the divine warrior, savior, king. But even there are these subtle hints that there is this new age and something wonderful is going on by using this word that has relations with idea of the genesis of something that's about to transpire. But, but further, adding to that, I want you to keep looking then at chapter 1. And if you have your American standard, it says, was the father, was the father, was the father, maybe 41 times. So the Greek word here is the idea of uh, to beget, and it's used 97 times in the New Testament, but about 41 times here. But it's maybe a little bit confusing. If you have your New American Standard, it says Abraham was the father. That's actually not what the Greek says. The Greek says that Abraham begatted. And so throughout this whole section, there's no verb followed by a noun, the father. It's not there. It's not there. So the New American Standard, which is supposed to be built on not interpreting the text, interprets the text over and over and over and over and over and over again here. 
Now, the reason why they did that is to provide clarity. Because if you're reading this, you would see that all these men were giving birth. Right? Abraham gave birth. David gave birth. Solomon gave birth. Because it's the normal word begat for birth. And it's related to a, a man, a father. So the, the numeric standard is trying to make it clear that it's the idea of fathered. It's the idea of a man and his wife, the wife giving birth, but it's following the royal male line. And so that's why it would say Judah was a father, or Judah, verse 3, gave birth to Perez. Salmon gave, he begat it. You could say Salmon fathered Boaz. Obed fathered, turned father into a verb. Other American standard says, was the father. But that maybe can lose some of the stress that's in the text. There is the strong emphasis, that is, of this verb with the male, that this is tracking the male line of Jesus through his adopted father, Joseph, all the way back to Abraham. Remember, even Abraham was promised that from his line in Genesis 17 would come what? Kings. And even Judah was promised to have the ruling scepter. And of course, here we have David and, and Solomon. And there is this focus, therefore, in the text of pointing out that Jesus through Joseph, is related to all these male figures, all these different kings. And so that's why Matthew, one of the main reasons why Matthew was written, is to point out that Jesus is Messiah, humanly speaking, because of his linkage to Abraham and to Judah and to David and all the other kings. He's in the kingly line. So he has the divine right to be king by his human ancestry. Further, you can see again, and we've mentioned this, that this genealogical list begins with the Messiah, chapter 1, verse 1, and it ends with this Messiah. Messiah, that is the Christ. The, the Greek text says Christos, the Jews would say uh, Messiah or Mashiach, and it's this idea, the anointed one. Christ is means the anointed one. That priest, that prophet, that king that God promised would be the best priest, the, the great high priest, the, the great king, the great prophet. And so this is whole text then is exploring and highlighting that Jesus Christ is this Messiah of whom Scripture talked about. For example, we're not going to spend hardly any time there, but 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 10 to 16. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel, I would give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you the Lord will make a house for you. 
when your days are complete and you lay down with your fathers, are rise up for your descendant single or your seed single after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He that is that descendant shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And this is ultimately pointing to Christ. To the Lord. Uh, Genesis chapter 17, which I mentioned in passing. Just turn there briefly. Genesis chapter 17, verses 6 through 8. Genesis chapter 17, verses 6 through 8. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you, and its seed, your descendant, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to be your descendant after you. And ultimately, this is pointing to and speaking of Christ. Therefore, in Matthew chapter 1, this genealogy may seem long, it may seem dull, but for the Jews that were reading this, they would understand that Christ had said, his followers are saying, the New Testament, the, the book of Matthew is saying that Jesus is that promised Messiah, that promised divine Savior King that was promised to come, has come. It, it has happened. He has been born. That those have been fulfilled. Now, with that in mind, then specifically, how does this convict us and comfort us? Well, it should convict us because he's Lord. He is king. The promised king has been born, did live a holy life, did die on a cross, did rise again. He will return, but he is Lord. We have a Lord, we have a king. And scripture says, therefore, since you have received Jesus as Lord, we should what? Walk in him. Romans 14 Verses 9 through 10 say that all of us will give an account. 9 through 12, all of us will give an account to the Lord. We'll all stand before Christ. Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation in Christ. 100% true, of course, it's what Scripture says. At the same time, there is some sort of accounting, not judgment for sin, but it seems, 1 Corinthians 3, for, for awards that we will have, with Christ. I'm saying that to say that he is our Lord, he is our King, he is our Redeemer, but we have to do with Christ. I'm not your Lord. There's no husband here which is Lord. There's no parent that that is Lord. There's no boss that is Lord. There's no political leader that, that is the Lord over the whole earth by divine right. That's only one. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord of the universe. Lord of heaven and earth. And as we have said in the past, I think it was James Denning that said, there's not a square inch over your life where Jesus as Lord doesn't say, mine, mine. There has been born. God the Son took on human flesh, fulfilling the promises in the Old Testament. That is that God the Son would be and is forever the divine warrior, Savior, King. But we can also take comfort from this, 
we can take comfort and, and rejoice from this, that God the Son became flesh for us. This idea, when it says Messiah, 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 verse 1 and verse 16, and we'll see later, chapter 1, 18 and following, that this divine Savior, Warrior, King is for who? He's for you. This this idea, chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus the Messiah, and chapter 1, verse 16, the Messiah, he was the hope of the nation Israel, yes, so they would, so he would bring deliverance from their political enemies, which ultimately will happen one day. But over and over again, Jesus would urge them to understand not just their political savior, but their spiritual savior. That's why we see later in chapter 1, 18 and following, verse 23, Emmanuel means God with us. And even the idea of Jesus, chapter 1, verse 1, verse 16, Jesus is Yeshua, Joshua, Yahweh saves us, Yahweh saves, Yahweh saves us from our sin, and that even here in verse 21, for he will save his people from their sins. We should have comfort because but God promised that he would take away the sins of the world, that there would be a great offering for all sin, sinners who would trust him. That has happened. That, there, that Satan would be conquered going back to Genesis 15. That Satan would be dealt a death blow. That's happened. Evil and Satan and death have been conquered by the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Amen. And so we should have great hope. We should be rejoicing. Then secondly, take comfort and conviction that the birth of Jesus demonstrates that God saves and uses wicked people. First, we see that this section is about that Jesus is this divine warrior, your king from Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12, Genesis 17, 2 Samuel 7, right? I just tried to quickly go through it. That Jesus is that promised prophet, priest, and king. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But together with that, this genealogy also demonstrates graphically that Jesus saves and uses wicked people. Now keep looking at this passage, and what is very unusual is it lists four women. Most Jewish genealogy, would they, they wouldn't list a woman. I mean, you, you can read Joshua, Numbers, Nehemiah, Chronicles. Most of the lists, I don't know if they have any women in the list. Maybe here and there, but, but very few. But in this list of the Messiah, the, the best genealogical list ever, there's four women. And three of them are Gentiles. And at least... Three of them, perhaps two, but perhaps the third, are immoral. Right? Ruth. Ruth was a Gentile. She was a Moabite. She was not immoral. Right? What a virtuous woman Ruth was. Okay? But she was a Gentile. But the others, Tamar, instigated incest with her father-in-law. 
and she's in the line of Christ. You think your family history might be bad? The family history of the Messiah is not a pretty picture, humanly speaking. Rahab, was she a virtuous woman in her history? She was a prostitute, sold her body and self for sex to make money. If you look at your text, it is interesting what it says about Bathsheba. Look at verse 6. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Literally, the Greek text doesn't say Bathsheba. They added it. The New American Standard adds Bathsheba, but the Greek text, and it may have in your margin, it may say just literally her of Uriah. Now, Uriah, was she from from Israel? Uriah was probably a Hittite. <laughs> and Bathsheba, maybe she, maybe in a sense she thought she had to, David, the king, seduced her, and she had physical relations with David. Maybe she felt that she had to do it or she could die, but she engaged in immorality. And even, at least reading the text, she didn't call up her husband. Hey, husband, be very careful because David's going to come and have you killed. And Uriah and even his men were conspired against by David who committed mass murder, killed Uriah and Uriah's men that were with him. David engaged in conspiracy to commit murder. And yet, he was, God worked on him, he got right with God, he asked for forgiveness. And you can read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, he had a broken heart. And his sin was forgiven. And Ruth, at least Rahab, seems Bathsheba, all believed in the Lord. I've forgotten about Tamar, whether or not she was a believer. But you have these women that most of them engaged in immorality. And the men that they were with, Judah, bastion of righteousness, Judah even said, Tamar is more righteous than me. And so what I'm pointing out to this text is pointing out is that there are these Gentile women that first that God saved, and these women were immoral, most of them, and yet God saved them and, and, and used them to bring forth eventually the Messiah. That's great, great mercy and grace. They had horrible backgrounds, but God used them, forgave them, and honored them. Now, not just, of course, with a woman wicked, but even these men, right? And as I said, we don't have time to do this whole list, and it's not the, the point to look at each individual. But Abraham, was Abraham the most moral man that ever lived? No. No, he didn't protect his wife. At least twice he didn't protect his wife and lied about it. And he didn't trust God. And his wife didn't trust God. 
not perfectly because of Hagar. He tried to fulfill God's plan through a different source other than what God had said. Was Solomon a bastion of righteousness? No. David? No. So you have men in here that, that believed God, that trusted God, but still struggled with sin. And then you have horrible men in here. You have Ahaz. Ahaz and others in the history. You have Ahaz in verse 9. And others in the history of Israel that were willing to burn the children and fire and sacrifice their kids. Horrible wickedness. And God will judge those men. He did judge them and held them accountable and they'll be held accountable forever. And yet they're in this historical line of Christ. Why? I think it's to show and to illustrate that evil men and evil plans and evil policies will not overcome the promised plan of God. There's no evil that man can do. There's no evil that Satan can aspire men to do that's going to stop the promised plan of God, whether it's about his promised plan of redemption or his promises to you. Evil can't stop God's plan. That's why you have Daniel, the whole book of Daniel, but even Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. Who can stop the hand of God? God is going to do whatever the Lord wants to do, and nothing can stop his hand. So this should, again, convict all of us here and comfort all of us here in this that in this list of people God used some were saved all of them were sinners but even some wicked people that, that were saved God was faithful and forgave them and still used them they were though very evil people that that were never saved and God still used them as his plan to bring forth the promised plan of God now Briefly then, how this could convict and comfort us is first, the Lord not only saves the wicked, but also uses the worst wicked things for his glory. Right? For, you know, uh, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So when you look at this list, there were evil things that were done by these men to good people, and yet God is still sovereign, and yet from that all, God brought forth something. And even now, there's evil things perhaps going on in some of your lives. Maybe it might be evil in terms of ill health, or it could be evil things that people are doing to you. God knows. God understands. Jesus Christ has been through it himself. But nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God has a plan. Nothing can stop his hand. He's in control. And he's going to do what he wants to do to glorify himself and to bless you forever. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But the Lord knows he's with you and evil is not going to win. Evil's already been defeated. Number two, thinking about how this could convict and, and comfort us. That is that God saves wicked people and uses wicked people and even wicked people that, that are never saved. From this we can say also that Christ came to save the spiritually sick. You remember Jesus said quite often, one is in Mark 2.17, that he, he didn't come to call 
the righteous, but sinners. He didn't come to save those that were healthy, but those that were sick with, with sin. Those that say, Lord, I, I need your righteousness. I'm not good enough to get to heaven. I need you to forgive me, Lord. We need a, a different source of righteousness. Sometimes theologically, it's called an alien righteousness. We need a, a list, as it were, of good deeds that's placed onto our account. And we get that from Christ and his life through faith. It's not that you can't be too wicked to be saved, but you can be too righteous to be saved. And if you read the Gospels, you see this over and over again. The Pharisees thought that they were so righteous. And Jesus basically says to them, it's not those, remember the poor in spirit, it's not those that think or believe that they're righteous. They'll be saved. It's those that are sick. There are times when I'll say, I'm the most sinful person I know. And sometimes people will be like, don't say that, Tom. But the, the reality is, the, the truth is, Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. And if you know yourself and you know your mind, if I was in your mind, I would be horrified. If I was in your mind, I would be horrified at your thoughts. And if you were in my mind, you'd be horrified. That's the truth, because we're sinners. We are redeemed. We are saved. We do have the Spirit of God. We are regenerated. But that sin that is within us, that remaining sin, it hasn't changed its nature. That remaining sin is still really, really, really bad. So whether we're saved or whether we are not saved, there should be this idea of, I need the Messiah. I need his righteousness. I need to focus on him and his grace. And then third, just thinking about how this should convict us and comfort us. This idea that when you look at this list, there's not one truly good person on this list. I mean, before God, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, right? There's no one that is good. No, not even one. Everybody on this list needs redemption, except for one, and that's the Messiah, Christ. But also on this list, you see these Gentiles, Uriah, Ruth, Rahab, Tamar also was a, a Gentile, right? I think so. And there is, looking at this list, this heart of God of always reaching out to the peoples of the earth. Even when he chose Israel, he didn't choose Israel just to be completely isolated and to hate the goyim. They were to reach the lost. They were to reach the other nations with the light of who Yahweh was. But they rejected doing that. They rejected God and they rejected their mission. That is, when you look at the first chapter of Matthew, there is this theme of God reaching out with to Rahab, to Ruth, even Uriah. And then when... The Gospel of Matthew ends, it ends with Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, talking about, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Matthew starts with this heart of God for the people of the world, not just for the Jews. The Messiah is the Messiah of who? Just the Jews? No, he's the Messiah for all who believe in him. The Savior of all the world. That's what First Timothy says. 
is. And then when Matthew closes, it closes with go and make disciples. So then our conviction should be is we need to be faithful to to evangelize. And by evangelize, scripture doesn't mean, and I, I don't mean you invite somebody to church. So evangelism is not saying, will you come to church with me? That's not the gospel. Sometimes, in some teachings, some seminars and some conferences, maybe some Christian habits have been developed where we invite somebody to church. That, that's not bad, but that's not the gospel. That's not evangelism. Evangelism is telling somebody that Jesus Christ is the Savior. He's Lord. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for sin, for sinners, and all, he rose again, and all those that trust him can be forgiven. Would you repent and trust Jesus Christ? That's the gospel. And the idea of Matthew 28, 19 through 20, is I'm not saying that this is wrong. It's not that we have a special event. I'm not saying it's wrong to have a special event. But the emphasis throughout Scripture is as you are about, as you live your life. Maybe you're drinking coffee at Starbucks. Are, are you getting your hair cut? Are you at work? Are you doing this or that or, or shopping? And I've told you about Lisa. As almost every restaurant we go to, she'll strike up a conversation with the waiter. I'm trying to talk about something else, you know, joking or something. And then she'll distract me from my joke by evangelizing. And she'll take opportunities all the time, be nice to a waiter, find out, you know, who they are, what they do, do they have kids, and then she'll share with them about Christ. She's very good at that, better than, than I am. I'm saying that this is saying that we need to have a heart for the peoples of the world to where when we're out and about, it's not like I have to evangelize, I have, I have to evangelize. It's just normal. You just, it just comes out because you love Jesus and you love people. Like God did. He has a heart for the peoples of the, of the world. And then third. Third, take comfort and conviction that the birth of Jesus Christ underscores that the universe is under God's control. Not, and it's primarily about him and not you. Right? When you look at this list, this seemingly dull genealogical text, primarily it's saying that God's in control and it's about Christ and it's not about you. Now, it's it's interesting how many pages are written about verse 17, about 14 generations. There's a lot of argument about 14 generations between each of these three periods, Right? And what some people will do is they'll go 14 times 3, and then they come up with a number of people. Well, the number of people is not equal to 14 times 3. The, the number of fathers is not necessarily equal to 14 times 3, right? Because there's three units of 14. That's what verse 17 says in this genealogical list. Well, David's name is used twice. You know, there's... Many names that are used. <laughs> is every name used twice? So it's not necessarily, it's talking about generations, not necessarily people. Okay, that's first of all. I'm talking about verse 17. But some people then will get into, see, 14, 14. 14 is 7 times 2. 7 is a number of God's fullness, and 2 is the number of witnesses. 
witnesses. So there is a witnessing of God's fullness of plan, and there's three sections, that's the Trinity. So the, the Trinity has a fullness of witness. No, no. This is mainly about David, because in Hebrew, the D is the numerical equivalent to four, and the W or the V, it's not A, B, C. W, and the English W is more last, but not in Hebrew. It's closer up to the front. It's in the sixth slot. So, and in Hebrew, there's no, technically there's no vowels. It's just consonants in terms of writing it. And so uh, D is four, and the, the V or the W is six. So if you just add up the consonants, that's 14. 14. So this passage is mainly about all the connections to David. That's called gematria, where you take numbers of different letters, and you can come up with all kinds of things. I think almost every president of the United States has been the Antichrist. And Bill Gates definitely is. I think if you add up all the, like all the numerical equivalents of his name, I think... So many people are the Antichrist if you use Dematria on them. And so that's the problem with trying to 14, 14 times 3 times 7 times 6. That's pi. Pi is evil. We can go around and around and around. That, that's not the idea. I think I would suggest that the idea is rather that God planned, organized, and is in complete control of history. He's organized it. it, its flow, its timing, how it rolls, all the different epics, the major and the minor or occurrences, the lefts, the rights, the downs, the valleys, all of that is organized and planned out by God. J.C. Ryle said what we learn from these lists of names is that God keeps his promises. And I think that's the primary idea, that God is in complete control. He has it organized. He's going to develop it. He's going to work it out according to his will, not our will. Now, just pressing it into this just a little bit more, you can see, on just look at verse 16. Jacob is the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. All the... This is one of the problems with the Numerican standard saying was fathered. It may have been better to say begat, begat, begat. It's all active with this B sound, at least in English. Because verse 16, it says, by whom Jesus was born, that's passive. See, all the others is active. Through David was born. Through David and his wife, of course, was born, was born, was born, was born. Um, or even that's not best. David begatted, and Solomon begatted, and Obed begatted. And then come the 16, and it's passive. That is something outside of Joseph and Mary caused Jesus to be born. All the others... Am I being clear? All the other verbs in verse 2 to 15, 2 to 16, which says Jacob is the father of Joseph, all of those are active. Then it comes to 16, and where it says was born, that is passive. That is something significant and unusual and special happened. And we'll see that in verses 18 down to 25. 
That is what verse 16 is saying, and we'll say this next week. It's not about Mary and Joseph. That's why I said this point. It's about that God's in control, and it's not about you. It's about Jesus. This verse 16 is saying it's not Mary and Joseph that is significant. It's Jesus Christ that's the one that is utterly significant. That's the point of verse 16. Now, with all of that then, and we're just, as I said, scraping on the surface of these things, what can we take home from this then? That it's not about us, it's about Christ. All the other verbs are active. This is passive. This three epics of 14 generations shows that God's in control. So how can we uh, apply these things? Well, first, number one, as we said, it's not primarily about you. That, that means it's not about your view of politics primarily. It's not about your hobbies, your kids, your parents, your spouse. It's not about your entertainment. It's not about your work primarily. It's not about your relationship. It's not about your self-pleasure. It's about Jesus Christ. And there's this core of Christianity, which is if you even want to become a Christian, you deny yourself, pick up the cross, and follow after me. I think in Christianity, if we're not careful, all of us can just be very selfish people where it's about us. And when it's about us, then we get into a lot of sinful problems. Is there any sin happens when we're we're not thinking about us? I think most sin happens because we're thinking about ourselves. But it should be all about Christ. Secondly, I'm going to leave some out because of time. Secondly, we need to exalt him. We need to it's not just that it's not about us, but it is about him. And if we're not careful, we can exalt other people. So we want to encourage other people, but we don't want to exalt people beyond what we should. And we should not be dependent upon other people. The Trinity is not the Father, the Son, and Mary. That's not the Trinity. And we would say amen to that. The Trinity is not Peter, Paul, and Mary. We would say amen to that. But the Trinity also is not Calvin, Spurgeon, and Luther. That's not the Trinity. The Trinity is not Steve Larson, John MacArthur, or R.C. Sproul. That's not the Trinity. But if we're not careful, especially in Christianity, we can almost set these figures up on a huge pedestal and we can exalt them when... They're not the king. They're not the priest. They're not the prophet. They're not the divine warrior, savior, king. I I don't live by their word. Too often in Christianity, there is, I have to listen to Larson. I have to listen to Larson. I have to listen to Larson. I have to listen to MacArthur. I have to listen to Piper. I have to listen to Sproul. I have to listen to Buckham. I have to listen to all these, all these different great, great, great preachers and praise God for them, you know. Yes. You know what? We have to live by the word of God. That's how we live by. We don't live by all these extraordinary men. Even in this list, there's extraordinary men. David. David was a sinner. And he needed Christ. 
So what I am saying is that list is, that this list is saying is we need to focus our eyes on Christ. This is the, the, the plan of God the Father. We'll see it was carried out by the Spirit. And the active agent involved on this was Jesus Christ. And we need to exalt him, take joy in him. Uh, Philippians 4.4 4 says, rejoice in the Lord. You know, men and women and parents and, and children and, and pastors and political leaders and church leaders, all of them, all of us will fail and disappoint people. There's only one person that has never failed and only one person that will never fail and only one person that has never sinned and that is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the conviction and the comfort then that we should take. So let me end then with a culturally popular Christmas hymn. You better not pout. You'd better not cry. Why? I'm telling you why. No. Jesus Christ is better than Santa Claus. Jesus Christ made the North Pole. Jesus Christ made the reindeer. And even though, to be honest, everybody here is naughty list. However... God in his grace and in his mercy took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again. And when you trust Jesus Christ, he gives you his good list of every good thing he did. And it's on your account. And instead of your name being on the naughty list, our names could be on the naughty list. It should be on the naughty list. But when you trust Jesus Christ, it's placed on the holy list. And he already gave you the best gift you could ever, ever, ever receive. And that gift is that he gave you himself. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life and Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is what this genealogy is saying. So Mary, Mary, genealogy. Lord, we thank you for this list. We've just scratched the surface of it, Lord. May you use it to convict us that you're Lord, you're King, you're Sovereign. It's not about us, it's about you. But Lord, may you also bring comfort because you are Savior and you are King and you are Warrior for us, for your glory. But even Hebrews 2 verse 10 says that we will have glory with you. And so we thank you that you are Messiah and that you are our Lord and that you are greater than any earthly person and greater than any legend because you are the true king, Lord. And so we give you glory. We praise you for Christ's sake. Amen.